0: Hi and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast and this is episode 132 and today I have a very special double act for me today. Um, these guys are, are, are certainly not new to this uh, podcast and we'll get into that in a minute but I'm so happy to have Professor Craig Sell and Dr. Kirsty Elliott Sell with me today. How are you doing guys? Good, thank you Lauren. Thanks for having us back.
1: Yeah, yeah, to good to be on again
0: i know while, well, we've apparently. just been we've just been talking offline about haven't we like uh, it seems like yesterday as with all these things um i mean obviously we know each other quite well and we've interacted in numerous ways over the years um but with regards to podcast yeah uh <laughs> it's been a few years um Kirsty we last spoke in 2015 about the female athlete triad and reds um And Craig, um, and relevant to today's conversation, we talked about bone health and performance back in 2015. And, um, I think one thing that I always, it always is remarkable to me is, is how the body of knowledge shifts over time. Um, particularly as it relates to sport and exercise science and sport and exercise nutrition, but also in certain areas, not so much, which is interesting. Um, So today we're going to talk about your um, paper that you guys have written called Nutrition and Athlete Bone Health and um, I'll be linking to that in you know in the notes for this so uh, you know right off everyone has to read this paper it's a great paper Uh, it's accessible because it's um, uh, open access of course and um, no excuse to not read this but we're going to delve into this a little bit and and uh, get into some areas that I'm particularly keen to explore and unpack a bit further. Um, and like I say, we you know we've done a few podcasts, episode 60 and episode 57 with you guys on areas, both of which will touch a bit into today's conversation. So I'll link to those as well because they're also well worth a read. But you know, what brought this about, Craig? Why you know why did this paper um, come up? And um, you know why now in particular?
2: Well, I guess, it, as you know, it links into the, the Gatorade Sports Science Institute expert panel that, that, that um, I went across to, to Texas and, and talked to, to the group about a year or so ago now. Um, but particularly really as a topic, rather than the specific paper, it, it's something that's been, you know, building and building into, into something of a, of a topic of interest. You know, historically, I think people have always considered the bone to be a bit of a static tissue. It's just there to kind of, you know protect organs and make sure we can move around a little bit, but it doesn't really do much other than that. And I think perhaps maybe in the last five to 10 years, it's been, um, it's been coming to the fore in terms of of being equally as dynamic in many aspects as things like muscle um, is. Um, and added to that, I think also, you know um, bone stress injuries are now recognized as being a pretty big time limiter to the elite athlete. And therefore You know, it was also become a a consideration as far as performance is concerned and not just um, uh, a health, a longer term health issue.
0: Yeah. And oh, okay, I'm excited about this because there's so much uh, I want to explore. And I think that's a great, you know, introduction to this. And uh, I'm going to come back to that in a second. But of course, it just occurred to me that. We might know each other quite well, but our listeners might not be uh, as familiar uh, if, they, uh, if they haven't uh, been listening to all of my podcasts or aren't yet immersed into this area of, of the research. So, Kirsty, ladies first on this one. So, give us a quick uh, quick overview as to, as to who you are and what you're up to, please.
1: Okay, so um, I'm an Associate Professor of Female Physiology, um, so for I think the last 20 or more years I've been um, researching in the area of um, sort of female physiology so particularly things like how the menstrual cycle or hormonal contraceptive use affects performance and um, that then sort of rolled into um, you know obviously my, my collaboration and relationship with Craig it rolled into you know areas such as the female athlete triad. So obviously you could see a, a synergy between Craig's uh, bone metabolism um, sort of hat on and my sort of female hat on. And then of course that's expanded in recent years into relative energy deficiency in sport. And um, so I spend the majority of my time sort of in those areas. And um, I also do a little bit more sort of health-related uh, research in, in maternal obesity. Um, but yeah, everything everything with me tends to come back to sort of female physiology and how the endocrine system, particularly the reproductive system, affects either sort of, you know, bone, muscle or other aspects of performance.
0: Oh, Brilliant, brilliant. I'm going to comment on that in a minute, but let's, <laughs> let's, let's uh, stage right, Craig. Tell yeah, I'm, I'm
2: best known for being Kirsty's husband these days. But I'm the director of the Sport uh, Health and Performance Enhancement Research Centre here at Nottingham Trent University. And, and generally my interests over the years have been around muscle metabolism initially, and then bone metabolism laterally. Um, sometimes in terms of the crossover between those two things and sometimes interactions with exercise and, and, and diet. And so, so largely really, I suppose, how the, the bone and muscle adapts to different diets and, 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 and different types of training and different types of exercise in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, excellent. And and of course, uh, yeah, I mean, you guys are a, 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 a double act in more ways than one, obviously. Um, <laughs> and uh, and actually, that crossover is, you know, I can imagine um, has has its uses in, insofar as, you know, where you, you, you both have your own interests, obviously, in terms of research and, and so on. But as with a lot of things that affect the human body and, you know, athletes, as I always say, athletes are humans also, uh, or at least most of them are. And, um, that crossover has some relevance. And the reason why I take a lot of interest in some of this is because, or all of this is because, you know, we, we have this, this tendency in sport and exercise science or sport and exercise nutrition to, you know, reduce, reduce people into subjects into being an athlete. And you know it's it's calories, it's macros it's about muscle protein synthesis, a lot of it's what we we can see i e we can see them perform on on the pitch we can see them running um but we spend possibly or have done historically spend a lot less time dealing with things we can't see, including health um and as a nutritionist as a practitioner you know uh, it's important. For me to, to always, you know, at the top of my mindset is, although I'm a performance nutritionist, as my specialization of, of being a nutritionist, a healthcare practitioner, it's my athlete's health that is my primary focus. Um, and I think that gets lost as well when we tend to focus on, you know, our training and education of sports nutritionists. It sort of gets, it gets a bit of a flip side. And this particular topic that we're going to get into, um, you know, the, 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 the health of the bones of our athletes is definitely something you can't see, really. I know there's scanning techniques and we'll get into that. And I guess that would be a good area to, you know, to start with all the, you know, all the things that you could get into and the really sexy areas, although I, you know, this is becoming super interesting, if we want to label that as as sexy, of course, Um, especially things like relative energy deficiency and energy availability and like you know oh, it's such a fascinating area but but craig um let's get back into this because this is an area that you've spent some time on like what why bone health anyway like why what you know what got you into that because that's not where you started was it with your research No, your not research.
2: at all no i started um so so my phd was more about around blood hemostasis so how the blood clots and then dissolutes the clot with things like alcohol consumption and and, and exercise and things like that so and I moved to Chichester and and um, started talking to Roger Harris more around uh, dietary supplements and creatine, carnosine, beta-alanine, these kinds of things. Uh, and it, it was really when I moved to uh, Kinetic, which was um, a defence and security company. So they were they were still doing a lot of a lot of research based work for the Ministry of Defence at that time. And. Uh, a colleague of mine there, Dr. Judy Greaves and, and I were becoming quite interested. And Judy already had a quite a big program up and running around the pathogenesis of stress fractures in military recruits so so they 've actually been interested in this for we're well, seriously interested in this for a bit longer than, than we've been interested in, in, in athletes, actually. Um, but the, the military was having a, a bit of a problem with the number of, of recruits dropping out of training or losing a lot of training time due to these bone stress injuries. And so they, they instigated quite a big program to try and reduce the incidence of these bone stress injuries. And, and as part of working at Connecticut alongside Julie, we, we established a, a bone health group there and started looking at this issue quite, you know, quite seriously. And then when I moved on from Kinetic to, to NTU, I kind of brought that area of interest with me and, and um, still collaborate with, with Julia and Bill Fraser and, and and those guys who we collaborated with back then. So, so yeah, it kind of just brought that area of interest with me, I suppose. And, you know, we're, as
0: I've already said, you know, we, 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 we're, you know, we're saying that athletes are humans and, we go further and say athletes are also males, they're also females, they're also young, they're also old. And you know, one of the many things that they all have in common is they have bones. But of course, just like, you know, from young to old, you know, you go from from short to taller and maybe shorter again as you get much older, you know, what I mean, you know, in terms of the body of knowledge that exists on, on what we know about bones you know, the global picture on that number one is like, how, you know, do we, you know, how long, how far back has that all gone? And then specifically as it relates to athletes as a specific
2: focus, you know, where are we with all that? Yeah, so I mean, I think you know, we, you know, we've we've known osteoporosis as a as a disease of of low bone mass and compromised microarchitectural structure. We, we, we've known that as a, as a disease or an issue, a health issue for 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 some time, you know, quite a long time, in fact. Um, but generally, you know, in the in the exercise field, we've been very, very much more focused upon muscle, and, and to a certain extent, that makes sense because we know it's muscle that drives performance and we know that you know that's that's quite a big area of 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 interest for anybody who wants to perform at the highest level they're they're more focused on performance and they would be on health Um, and i think you know if you take bone health and and adverse bone health in terms of considering that in terms of of the, the disease of osteopenia or osteoporosis now that's something that might manifest later on in your 50s 60s 70s 80s and so we all know that when you're young, you're a young 20 something athlete, you're not really focused about what's going on when you're 60 or 70, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, middle-aged like we are, Lauren, you start to become <laughs> a little <laughs> bit more concerned. So, oh, <laughs> damn it, I'm, old, I'm older than you, damn it. <laughs> I, don't, well, I, I wasn't going to bring that up. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, you know, when you get to to our age, you start yeah. to think a little bit more you know, about what the, That's true the longer term, shorter term picture <laughs> is going to be, you know. So,
0: actually, that's a good point you make there. And, Kirsty, well, because, like in many areas, uh, and you don't have to overly agree with your husband next to you, but men, don't worry, men, she won't. men and male athletes, you know, tend to ignore a lot of things like this. Um, but females have been more aware of their bones and bone health um, and the fact that, you know, it's something that could be of concern far more than, than we have. I mean, maybe you could just you know because i'm trying to set the scene here obviously as it relates to to bones you know you know why is that like how far back you know has this been an issue and and what specifically i guess we could start to differentiate a little bit you know females in particular you know why why has that focus been so much on them
1: so you're you're absolutely right i think obviously with the invention of the um female athlete triad you know that was a, a concept you know brought out you know you know, quite a long time ago now, which clearly identified this link between sort of, you know, poor bone health in female athletes suffering from, you know, low energy availability with or without an eating disorder. And I think by packaging that triad, it, it became sort of, you know, clearly identifiable as a, as a female condition. So we've been focused on this particular aspect with bone health and females for, for a long time now. So, um, and obviously that's evolved, you know, since since the first um, version of female athlete triad. It's evolved now into a really nice sort of spectrum diagram from you know sort of optimal health to a clinical manifestation. And um, so that's been around for, for quite a while now. And and obviously in the last sort of more recent um, few years, and um, we've had obviously the invention of, of REDS, which extended out and um, that you know some of these concepts um, into male athletes. And indeed, um, as we sort of touched upon in in the paper, Craig and I the, there may well be now a, a male athlete triad as well and um, so it isn't just a female issue as I say it has been historically linked with females because of the relationship between um, low estrogen and, and poorer bone health um, but yeah so that, that's been around as I say about 20 years now and as say, more recently coming and sort of diversifying and I'm making it noted that it also affects males it may affect them slightly you know in a, in a different way and again one of our our studies with Maria um, a couple of years ago now she showed that the male athletes um, weren't affected in the same way as the female athletes um, to a sort of a lesser extent with the same amount of energy restriction, but it is certainly emerging now that this, you know, will affect males too. And it's something I think the, the, the research we're going to see it go down that avenue a lot more now.
0: Yeah. I find that fascinating and indeed with yourself, but also some of your colleagues in the research sphere that I've talked to where we have gotten into this topic of energy availability you know, males are coming up a lot more often. you know obviously there's um you know combat athletes and uh then there's jockeys yeah. uh, uh, and so on. But I guess when, you know once you start talking about you know high levels of training volume and low levels of energy intake, you know, maybe that starts to um make men and women more a little bit more similar in under those conditions which is an area that i'm interested in exploring because you know we haven't got time to completely differentiate males and females other than i think it's quite clear that this is this is a topic that's relevant to everyone mm-hmm. uh, and um, and and of great interest to to those of us that are practitioners because there is something that we can do to help but obviously we need to understand this to be able to work out you know when and where we can be of use um and so on um one of the I mean we got into this in our previous conversations Craig about bone health and performance a few years ago but you know I think one of the fascinating things is is the fact that bone isn't just that you know static sort of hard thing that you know we you know we imagine from like Halloween and <laughs> looking at anatomy models it is actually you know really quite an exciting interesting thing in itself and I say thing is obviously you know such a a basic phrase for it but maybe you could just give us an idea of um you know just how how amazing bone is and and the fact that you know maybe we shouldn't be looking at it the way that we have historically if that's the right right way for me to say that
2: yeah, I think we've like I said at the start, we've kind of almost traditionally looked at it in terms of, you know, providing that that structure, providing that protection to organs, and you know somewhat considering it as a store of, of certain um minerals, et cetera, like calcium and things like that that we 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 need. You know, a large proportion of the, the body store of calcium is in the bone. But I think more recently, you know, we've stopped to look at it just in terms of a structural element and to look at it as having a, a sort of a more, um, you know, a more metabolic kind of, of existence. And, and not only is there, you know, kind of that, that sort of hard element to the bone, but there's also that sort of dynamic bit, that, that softer, squidgier bit, for want of a better word, that also turns over. And we don't really know very much about how the, the bone collagen turns over in response to, you know, not, not directly, not bone specifically, how it turns over in response to sort of exercise and, and dietary changes over, over time, and, and certainly not very well in, in athletes. But one of the things that we also see is that it, it may well be involved, and there might be some quite distinct links between the way in which the you know, the bone operates and the way in which the muscle operates and the way in which the adipose tissue operates such that these things might end up communicating quite closely with each other to give an overall, you know, picture of of, of whole body metabolism, which is, which is quite fascinating in a way. And we, we're really only just starting to scratch the surface of some of this crosstalk between these tissues. So we, we really don't know very much. We're just starting to potentially identify some of these these things that are expressed in, in muscle and in bone that might, that might talk to each other and might integrate metabolism a little bit more than we, we previously thought was, was happening. And, you know, just to, just to bring
0: us back to a couple of basic things, which actually I think a lot of people take for granted is the fact that, and you'll explain this in a second, but bones aren't just there for structure, obviously, or to attach things to or provide stability. They actually, uh play a role in a lot of other functions within the body don't they um maybe you could give us uh, just an idea about you know just to what extent as far as we even know they uh, they contribute
2: yeah well, I, th- I think that's that's partly the, the the problem to an extent you know to what extent they contribute is, is is still still a bit of an unknown in many respects like i said we're sort of really only at that you know initial phase of identifying <laughs> some of the 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 potential mechanisms of of this communication between for example muscle and bone and it may well be therefore that bone has a much larger role to play in in energy metabolism for example than we previously realized um and we also know that it's got quite a complex micro architectural structure you know bone is not bone in that sense there's there's cortical bone that 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 hard compact bone there's trabecular bone that that spongy bone um, and one of the things that our group is just starting to look at in, in collaboration with, with Phil Atherton's group at University of Nottingham is that is the turnover of, of collagen in the bone is, is quite dynamic and it might be not only bone specific but might be bone site specific which raises another load of questions you know in terms of what we're really able to measure at the moment and determine about the bone is, is, is still relatively limited particularly as you you consider it specific to, you know, athletic endeavor, let's say, and, and the athletes you know, specifically.
0: I think, yeah, it's amazing. I, I've noticed though, in the last five years or so of doing this podcast, uh, five or six years now, um, is just this growing interest in all these sort of signaling situations and the feedback mechanisms that occur within the body that brings me back to the conversation and podcast I had with John Hawley, where he kept, saying you know we, we do have to keep thinking about you know an integrated view of biology um, and physiology and so on rather than just you know that that tempting reductionist path that I've been talking about a lot lately um, and I guess you know at the top of our mind is that we, we just got to be careful because we don't know very much do we and I guess bone particularly as
2: it relates to athletes is very early days is that right? Yeah I mean I think if you certainly if you compare it to the to the amount of information that we know about muscle then yes it's it's extremely early days and and really specific to the athlete we haven't really been looking at at bone you know seriously outside of the last sort of you know half a dozen years or so let's say and I'm not saying there isn't pockets of information that were done prior to that that there certainly were but I mean I think there's now a, a mounting interest in the area of of, of bone as far as the athlete is concerned, um, not only in terms of protecting their longer term bone health, but also inevitably, you know, and primarily in relation to reducing bone stress injuries, because we know they're fairly significant injuries. And we, we know that, that, you know, the athlete loses an awful lot of training time as a result of these, issues, these injuries. Um, so, so bone injuries don't repair you know, that quickly. And, and so the athlete can under certain circumstances, lose quite a bit of training time. And, you know, you do that in a, in a, you know, a a championship year, let's say, for example, and that can, that can make the difference between, you know, winning and losing or winning and not even being at the championship. So, so I think, you know, that's why I think we're now starting to pick up a lot more interest in in the area of bone, but it, but it is pretty recent, I would say.
0: Yeah, the, well, yeah, I, I, you know, this past weekend, I was, lecturing in, in Portugal about reducing infection incidents in football players. And, you know, the area there was, it's not just, a, it's not just about the fact that the athlete gets sick, you know, and I guess with this current coronavirus, you know, thing going on and so on, you know, there's, there's the propensity to or the, the increased risk of getting other people sick, uh, which is not something that we would worry about A sort of a transmittable bone issue necessarily, but, <laughs> but, um, the impact on the athlete is clear, um, potentially their career, um, um, but also the impact in team sports that that can have on that athlete not participating within that team and the, you know, the important role they have as, as, as a member of that team. And I mean, it's quite amazing. So I guess it doesn't matter how we look at it. There's many different reasons why we would want to have an interest in this in you know, for athletes, but you, you use a term and I think we should explore this initially and um, I'll get you both to contribute on this one, but um, we'll start with you, Craig, though. So what what does bone health even mean? I mean, it's not like we're looking at a, a plant and going, Oh, you know, that plant looks healthy or not, but what, 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 you know, it's an interesting term that, so let, let's unpack that
2: a bit. Yeah. So in, in some respects, um, you know it's it 's a difficult one to answer in in some ways because you know it, it kind of means different things to different people in some respects, but um, I think really to many people it just it just means the lack of of low bone mass or, or the lack of osteopenia and osteoporosis um, but it but it could be made up of many different components, so you know I would also say you know if you 've got an athlete with a bone stress injury, then their bone isn 't healthy at that particular point. Um, So, I mean, I think, you know, it, it probably extends a little bit beyond not having osteopenia and osteoporosis. It's, it's more, I suppose, having, or in this context anyway, it's more having the required bone strength to cope with the, the stresses and rigors of, of whatever you want to put that bone through. And in this case, you know, for an elite athlete, it's, you know, a high training load, um, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. So, well, maybe, Kirsty, you can extend, let uh, let's, let's because I just want, I just want everyone to, answer. yeah, no, I know it's a great <laughs> answer, but uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm knocking the ball over to your end here, just from the perspective of, you know, at the front of our mind, just to appreciate just, just how important, you know, having yeah. good bone health is to, to athletes, you know, it, I mean, sort of the areas in which, our bones play a role in terms of, of being sort of stronger, faster and and so on. Is that, I mean are there are any thoughts on in that regard that you think are worth commenting on?
1: Yeah, I think um, you know, certainly to sort of I guess hold on to, to Craig's answer is is that idea. I'll I'll go back to the um Uh, triad spectrum so it used to be that when you know I would go and I would talk to some athletes about bone health and the coaches you know they weren't that happy about talking about bone health they wanted to talk about sort of performance outcomes and you know they were like there's no buy-in if you talk about bone health and I was quite surprised by that and I'm like well if your bone health is poor if you have issues there then you know you have these these bony injuries you're away from training you're away from competition so surely that is a, a big enough buy-in and you know they very much felt like that you were either healthy or broken and I guess that's why I like the the triad spectrum so much and um, because you move obviously from good optimal health and um, down to these clinical manifestations and by the time you were there. Then, you know we're no longer talking talking about optimizing health and performance we're talking about rehabilitation so it's really great to be able to sort of track athletes and um, you know their health along the spectrum and, and I think maybe that's really where um, you know females have this really great early warning sort of detection system so as you said earlier um, you know bone health it's it's sort of a, a hidden hidden aspect isn't it you know it's, it's not visible it's not on show but what you know the triad in, in females really does is it gives you an early warning detection so if for example you um, are a female athlete and you you know used to have a humanorrhoic menstrual cycle a, a fully functioning menstrual cycle and you know you, you experienced a, a period every month or so if you lose that period it's a it's an early warning detection system that something else might be happening and then that oftentimes leads us to you know doing a, a bone scan with the female athlete to look at their bone health so actually you know this whole system together is it's really great for tracking health over time and it just allows us to see bone health in a different way than healthy or osteoporotic and broken
0: and and also um bone isn't i mean you know this is something that exists within and if we keep this for now in the context of athletes but you know you've got young athletes you've got old athletes so some of those athletes are growing and developing and some of those athletes are like I'm thinking masters level athletes who are going going the other way, and um, you know there's a, 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 a nonetheless a, a depreciation, but it's normal if we want to look at it that way. Um, so I think it would be worth just expanding on that before we get into the main topic here about nutrition and and uh, bone health and and for athletes. But but bone is you know you've already said it's not the static thing, but you know j- just just how how much variability is there in that regard?
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's quite a bit is, is the answer yeah. to that. Um, so, you know, you know, you're absolutely right. So, so you get this sort of, you know, during childhood and early adolescence, you get this pretty rapid, you know, bone growth, such that you reach peak bone mass, you know, somewhere between your, your 20s and 30s, depending. So even that's variable individual to individual. Um, and of course that the the amount of bone mass you accrue might be dependent upon things like the you know the exercise that you perform when you're younger your diet and genetics and all these other things you know there is a large genetic component to that so i mean even that's variable The the age at which you reach bone mass is a little bit variable but inevitably you reach that peak bone mass that's the most bone mass you're going to have somewhere between your 20s and your 30s and then you know Um, sorry to keep going on about this but when you get middle-aged like you and I Lauren (laughs) I'm gonna edit this stuff out
1: (laughs) I'm younger than both of you so please leave it in
2: so so you you know that that sort of flattens out a little bit and you get this sort of semi-plateau yeah and then your your bone mass inevitably starts to decline as you age and you know and essentially you know the the pattern is relatively similar between males and females except for you know females tend not to recruit as higher peak bone or achieve quite as high a peak bone mass as males do and of course when they start going through the the menopausal period the protective effect of the estrogen drops out so they they lose bone at a little bit of a greater rate than males so, so yeah there is this kind of natural um, pattern to 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 bone change over the lifespan and and you know depending upon how much exercise you do what type of exercise it is when you do it when you start it when you finish it all of those sorts of things will will inevitably influence the 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 bones response so it really is quite a complex situation um
0: yeah and you talked about this in the last podcast we did uh, a few years back um in uh, episode 60 and i know you 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 know you talked about you know not just loading the bone but also the bone you need to twist the bone if if uh, if that's not an oversimplification there's quite a few a few things there that that will further influence you know what happens to that bone and how it adapts to what it's put through which is just fascinating um but just to go back to something you touched upon with menstruation and so on kirsty and this isn't the focus of the you know, podcast, and you did actually talk about this in, in the podcast that we did, um, episode 57. Um, but since we're talking about athletes, and we've just pointed out that some of them are young, mm-hmm. um, pre pubescent for example, um, you know, because yes, in a minute, we're going to talk about all the things that we can do for nutrition. But, you know, there's a bigger picture, smaller picture focus here, uh, and some things we just can't do anything about one of which is you know if, if you're pre-pubescent well that's that's just where you are um, and obviously I guess the one that may be of harder to understand but something you know a lot more about of course is things like you know contraceptive pills and the impact that that could have on bone on bone health
1: yeah so you're right. When, when we start to consider that, you know, it, particularly in elite sports, um, so a PhD student of mine, Dan Martin, did a, a prevalence questionnaire a few years ago, um, probably still holds true today, um, but we're, we expect probably around half of the elite female population, athletic population, to use some type of hormonal contraception. And, you know, uh, or contraceptives are the most common type of hormonal contraceptive used. And in these users, then um, they're not experiencing um, cyclical fluctuations in estrogen. So that has the potential to affect bone health. Um, But also if you think of it in the sort of, um, I guess, within the, the concept of the triad, you, you lose that early warning detection system as well, because they don't menstruate, they don't have a period as such, they have a withdrawal bleed. And, you know, that will happen, that withdrawal bleed, regardless of low energy availability and potentially, um, you know, poorer bone health. So certainly um, having hormonal contraceptive users um, definitely muddies the water and you know it changes the profile but i guess i could i could share with you the theoretical sort of uh, concept is that these oral contraceptive users have consistently down regulated endogenous estradiol concentrations and so if we propose that oestrogen is, is good for bone, as, as we do, then if obviously you spend um, year after year after year with chronically low endogenous oestrogen, then that may affect your bone health. Um, I'm using lots of words like may and might and theoretical, and um, because it's really hard to check this information over time. Um, because women sort of start to use an oral contraceptive, then they might come off it for a little while. Maybe some become pregnant and that changes their hormonal profile again, and then they go back on it. So, you know, there aren't really, um, you know, there's there are not large data sets available to us which show, you know, four, five, ten conti- con- continuous years of hormonal contraceptive use and its subsequent effect on bone. But it seems... You know theoretically or biologically plausible that if you continue to have low levels of of endogenous asgy that this may affect bone health, and um, but as I say, we're sort of you know I want to just caveat that with you know the lack of evidence at the moment to to you know definitely support that 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 statement.
0: yeah, excellent, okay, so the last bit I want to get into before we get into what, m- m- why someone would have downloaded this podcast <laughs> uh, on on nutrition. <laughs> Um, You know, we're using terms um, around, you know, to determine the health of bone, but how does one actually determine the health of bone? Um, You know, what do we, you know, again, you can't sort of have a look through the window. So how does, you know, how does that happen, um, particularly that's relevant to athletes?
2: Well, so again this is this is not straightforward as one might imagine that it might be so there so are a number of different components that that make up you know um, you know bone and, and the way in which we might look at bone and generally speaking when when people talk about bone health or the bone they're really talking about the bone mass or the bone mineral density and that's measured by a you know a dexa scan which a lot of people will be familiar with either you know as as part of a a scan to try to determine body composition, or as a scan to try to determine bone mass, um, and that's essentially a, a measure of the amount of mineral, which is you know largely calcium and phosphorus in, in 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 bone. But it's it's the it's the it's the measure of that the amount of that mineral contained within a certain volume of the bone. That's really what it's considering. But of course, then that doesn't really tell you anything. So that, that tells you about bone mass, but it doesn't give you a full picture of bone strength. It only predicts sort of 60, 65% of the, the strength of the bone, something like that. And so you've got, you've got other considerations then in terms of, you know, what is the shape of the bone? So the bone geometry is an important component of bone strength, particularly sort of um, specific to how one might use the bone, i.e. the movement patterns that an individual might go through. So they might be stronger in some In some movements and then the bone might be in in other movements and essentially what we're really interested in is 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 bone strength and that's really kind of gives you an indication of the resistance to fracture of the bone or it's its ability to really resist the strain placed upon it and that's kind of I suppose a are uh, 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 made up of a mixture of the, the mass of the bone, the geometry of the bone and its quality, which which relates to its bone microarchitecture and mineralization. So if you really want to look at all of these things, you've got to measure them in slightly different ways. So, you know, I, I mentioned DEXA, that, that gives you some information, but but not all information. Uh, you could look at, you know, PQCT, for example, if you want to look at the, the geometry of the bone, Um, but you can only access certain bone sites with that. Um, If you want to look at microarchitecture, then you need, for example, a high-resolution PQCT, which allows you to get down to the cortical and and trabecular components of the bone. Um, And then if you want to look at the acute response of the bone, then one of the things that you... you, you, Well, the only real thing that you've got access to at the moment that tells you something about this is, is bone turnover markers that you can measure in the blood. But, of course, these aren't as maybe specific to the bone as we'd like them to be. Um, we're looking as well now a, a, a method to perhaps look at the, the turnover of the collagen, as I mentioned earlier, which might allow us to be a little bit more specific, but, but generally speaking, there's no one measurement that kind of tells you everything you need to know. You, you really maybe need a little bit of a, of a, of a mixture of, of measurements, and obviously one, one of the other things is, of course, if you want to look at, uh, for example, bone injuries or bone stress injuries, then you, you may also need to to look at that via an MRI scan or or something similar. So again, there's no one way of of doing the whole thing, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, that, it's interesting, isn't it? Because even if even if you do have access to, say, a Dexa, that doesn't that that might only tell you what's happened at some point in the past, which might be recent, might not, but you don't know what's going on right now, which, which is really interesting, which obviously you know, makes it reasonably logical that you need to have fairly frequent scans, particularly if you're in a, a, a group that's maybe at higher risk of these problems. And, and Kirsty, I mean, who, who do you think, at this very last stage of this section of our chat, but who, Who? I mean, what would you consider to be someone who's higher at risk of this other than obviously people jumping out of aircrafts or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> basketball players and just YouTube basketball player and, you know, um, bone injury. There's some horrible stuff you can see on videos, but, but, you know, from a risk factor point of view, what would your thoughts be on that?
1: So typically, um, the sort of athletes that we would expect to be sort of more at risk would be um, either endurance-based or those in, in non-weight-bearing sports. And then again, sort of linking with, with red in the triad, those um, at risk of low energy availability. So they would be the sort of three uh, groups of athletes who would be, be most at risk um, sort of, of of these type of injuries.
0: Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. And we're, okay, great. Cause we're going to, we're going to talk about things like energy availability in a minute. Um, so in, in the paper, you've, you numerous times, you make this comment that, that, you know, n- bone is nutritionally modulated tissue or nutritionally modifiable. Um, wh- wh- what do you mean by that? What does that term actually mean?
2: Yeah. So, so, I mean, generally what I mean by that is that, you know, nutrition has a, a role to play in, 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 in sort of the way in which the bone responds either, you know, semi-acutely, let's say, or, or over time. So, you know, for example, if you've got deficiencies in certain elements of the diet, that can be a bad thing for the bone, or you may be able to enhance bone um, formation and, and, and bone strength by providing um, you know dietary support. And, and of course here we're, we're talking particularly in relation to the, you know, the hard training athlete. Um, but, but, generally as well. And I think one of the things that you can see is that, um, you know, the the bone does respond even relatively acutely, at least as far as, you know, bone markers would, would indicate, does they do or the bone does respond relatively acutely to, um, food intake, whether that be specific, you know, nutrients, largely macronutrients in in this case, but, but also to, to mixed meal feeding or or fasting is, um, Now that you
0: say that, some words came into my head, as they do. Um, Being old and losing my mind, you know. (laughs) Um, Is this a question of, you know, it's like when you think of weight loss or body fat loss or body fat gain, it's something which, you know, whichever end of the spectrum is, is you can sort that out almost at any time throughout your lifespan. But when it comes to bone mass, are we delaying the inevitable you know, consequences of of being on this planet for as long as we might get to live, um, or uh, you know, and the and and the challenges that bones go through in that process, or you know, is this something where it doesn't really matter what happens? We can we can get back to a good place. Um, you know, what, I mean, you know, what is the what is the potential for change here? Modifiable change
2: that we we have some degree of control over. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'm going to let Kirsty know. I'm not,
1: i um, will <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just out for a moment.
2: <laughs> she just kicked me under the, ta- under the table. Um, so, so no, that is a really, really good question. I had this discussion actually with Aska Ukenjuk recently um, mm. about, you know, he was specifically talking about cyclists, who are one of those sort of groups who we would consider to be at risk of sort of a low bone mass and 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 weaker bones as they, as they age. And one of the questions he asked is, you know, well, post career, post, you know, competitive career, if, if they then do something else and they start loading the bone and they start eating more energy and they start, you know, consuming different types of foods, can, how much of the bone mass problem can they sort out? How much of the bone can they recover? And then the answer to that is we really don't know that much because we don't really have you know long enough data on these types of populations to suggest whether you know they can recover that situation i mean what do you mean by recover that situation because as they get older of course you would be into that age-related decline in bone mass in any case so so there's going to be some loss naturally no matter who you are um, so so can you Can you recover that, or are you pretty much if you if you if you've got low bone mass during your competitive years in your twenties, maybe early thirties, are you then largely doomed to osteoporosis in your later life? Um,
1: I would I would add to that that I remember back in the day when I started reading about osteoporosis in postmenopausal women and. And of course, a lot of the literature then is around hormone replacement therapy. You know, if you put estrogen back into the system, what would happen to these potentially osteoporotic bones? And, you know, quite often they would just describe it not so much as in fixing a problem or or increasing bone health, but just slowing the rate of decline. And, you know, that was seen as a a huge benefit in itself. So I guess, you know, like Craig said, without the long-term data to support, you know, fixing per se what we would suggest is, you know, that keeping yourself above that fracture threshold for as long as you can or slowing the rate of decline is is really important.
2: I think inevitably, you know, for those those individuals at risk, I think, you know, trying to do as much as you can to modify exercise and dietary behaviours whilst you're competitive has got to be Best advice as it currently stands, but I mean, you know, sometimes that falls a little bit on deaf ears. I, I have heard cyclists enthuse about the fact that they've got low bone mass in the past because their power-to-weight ratio on the bike's gone up, right? So, um, which seems crazy to me, but uh, but I have heard that on on more than one occasion.
0: Not not as crazy as older people wearing lycra. That's uh, <laughs> 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 that's uh, that's the real concern with that with that thought process. Um. Right. Okay. So if we start to get a bit more into nutrition, which is, as as you've made clear, is a you know is a is something that can play a role. And when we talk about, you know, athletes, you know, to be specific, we're we're not we're not really talking about someone who goes to the gym a couple of times a week um, for the main focus of this conversation. We're talking about people that have high training loads. Um, they might be endurance athletes. They might be um, um, you know, more into strength or power sports or whatever, but people are involved in significant, more or less daily levels of physical activity, where I would see two particular concerns. Um, and if we look at it from the perspective of sort of top, total type and timing as one view of the relevance of nutrition to to an athlete and, and health, um, and specifically quantity and quality, Um, If we break quantity and quality down and go, right, you know, quantity would be, you know, is that athlete consuming enough energy, enough calories Um, and quality being, you know, the makeup of those calories, even if they're consuming enough energy, is the quality of their diet appropriate, which could be the distribution of certain macronutrients like, you know, the protein being the most favorite topic that everyone wants to get into or the most polarized debate on the planet being carbohydrates and so on. And we'll, we'll get into that in a second. And then the area that I think that is ignored too much in sports science, and that is, you know, um, things like, uh, from a nutritional quality perspective is things like vitamins, mineral fiber, you know, stuff like that, which we'll come back to in a second. But, but I guess when we're talking about, is the athlete consuming enough energy? And if the concern is that they're not, um, and we're not specifically thinking about um, body composition and so on from a, an observable perspective or from a traditional performance perspective where it affects speed and power. But where we are concerned with bone health, Kirsty, um, I guess energy availability is the thing that that reduces down to. Um, and you've mentioned it earlier, particularly with Reds and so on. And we've talked about this before. Um, and it's such a, an interesting area because this, this is, ob- as you point out in the paper, but this is obviously a major concern as it relates to, to bone health. Um, so maybe you could just explain, or just recap what we mean by energy availability and then in the context of bone health, why this is relevant.
1: Okay, so um, energy availability... which definition to use okay so in terms of of energy availability as i'm sort of going to to use it i'm talking about um the energy that's available for physiological processes after um you know exercise energy expenditure has has been used so so what what's left over for that and typically um it's around 45 um kilocalories Now, I always get my units in the wrong way. 45 kilocalories per kilogram of lean body mass a day. Gosh, that needs an acronym, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So around 45 is is great and that's ideal to support um, bone health. But we do understand that that's uh, an unrealistic target for, for most. And so our best sort of suggestion here is somewhere between 45 and 30 30, um, kilocalories per kilogram um, of lean body mass per day. Um, So getting it somewhere there, Below 30 um, seems to sort of instigate a, a lot of sort of knock on consequences of other systems, particularly the endocrine system. And that's where we start to see sort of, you know, other systems getting involved and potentially sort of working together to, to reduce bone health. And certainly when you get down around 15 kilocalories, we see that in amenorrheic athletes. At that point, they're not having those lovely cyclical changes in, in estradiol and those protective effects. And that's where we see people getting. Into female athletes in particular, get into some real difficulty. So just to recap, forty-five is is perfect, and um, thirty is is great. Keep it above thirty if you can. And um, yeah, as I say, it's it's it quite individual, though, isn't it? You know, there's not a we haven't yet hit upon a, a set threshold. And certainly, the the work of Anne Loughs has been fantastic. You know, she's she's looked at lots of different sort of you know levelness of energy availability. And um, but it seems to be you know in big numbers, they, the below thirty definitely. Definitely below 15 but just to bear in mind that there are individual differences and certainly if you're looking at that elite end of the athletic population you know we we find that they respond and adapt and sometimes reset to different thresholds and um, because you know they're in long-term energy and um, low energy availability so yeah a bit of a bit of a mixed bag but hopefully those numbers will help did I you want to add?
2: Uh, well, yeah. I just add that actually, it's it's, it's again, it's pretty complicated. So, although Kirsty's right, our best available information at the moment is you know those sort of numbers, as Kirsty mentioned. Really, that's only based upon one or two studies. Yeah. Actually, um, you, know, you know, nice studies as though they are from from Anne Louks, but I mean, really, that's that's really all they're they're based upon and. and and the outcome measures there are, are some some of the non-specific bone turnover markers as outcomes and it's an independent group's design. So so there are some some issues with, with even just saying that as a I mean, I, I avoid now the world word threshold for sure, but mm. but as as a as a as a number, it's hard to put a specific number on it. And of course the other big thing, the other big nuance here where you need some context, Lauren. I know you'll be happy to have got that in there, um, <laughs> is is in what do we mean by energy availability in the sense of we know probably that the chronic low energy availability is is definitely a problem as far as the bone is concerned what we're less clear on is the magnitude as we've just talked about but but also we don't really know what happens if you for example are only involved in intermittent low energy availability even if that's severe is that problematic and how problematic and how intermittent and you Know those kinds of questions, still, we, we don't really know um, the answers to, to be honest. And of course, one of the big problems you've also got with the way in which people look at, at low energy studies is that you've also got um, low intakes of lots of other things that are pertinent to the bone, yeah. Um, which might segue into you know, what we we'll talk about. No, I'm that, that
0: was the per that was perfect because that's why I said to begin with. You know, we've got this quantity and quality and also we need to, you know, further define or further describe quality is not just meaning protein and carbs, which we'll talk about in a minute, but like you just inferred there, that other things like vitamins and minerals and, you know, these all play a role. Um, And yeah, I mean, you know, there's energy availability for as it relates to what is sufficient for the performance outcomes the training adaptations and, and of course, um, you know, bone health. I mean, it's pretty complicated, which I guess it's better that we look at this from a, you know, gray area rather than a specific number because it, you know, that target moves around quite a lot, doesn't it? Mm. Um, are there, Kirsty, are there, are there, um, types of athletes or types of sports that you think that's more likely to be a problem or, is it just solely a, you know, uh, an individual thing?
1: Oh, so it's a good question. I think, you know, we've, we've been speaking recently, haven't we? And and also with, with Trent Stellingworth about sort of periodizing low energy availability. And it's, it's quite a, maybe a controversial topic, I guess, you know, we're really keen now, of course, to protect the health of our athletes, which is, obviously absolutely paramount mm. um, but obviously when we look at some of these short sort of dip into low energy availability but then it's only for a short amount of time so it could be for example in, a, in an athlete who's trying to make weight or maybe in the I guess in the cyclist quake with a the, with the tour or, or something like that so a discrete portion of time but then when they stop and, and then they, they, they obviously um, are no longer in low energy availability, a lot of these athletes tend to bounce back quite quickly, certainly from the sort of bone markers, uh, bone turnover markers in blood. So I guess in terms of, sorry, I, I want to come back and, and answer the question you asked me. So athletes who can dip in and out of low energy availability, you know, across the season or at various times, I would say that that was better for want of a word than you know the athletes and i guess maybe a a long distance endurance athlete or a runner for example who who's almost perpetually in low energy availability so i hope that has answered your question but it's something that we're certainly thinking about this periodization can you dip in and out you know and maximize performance outcomes whilst not obviously giving yourself long-term negative health consequences
0: so the the reason why i'm asking is because you know, in, 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 in the real world, things happen, which are not as we, as well, as you see it in the laboratory, for example, which you have to control for obvious reasons. Um, and the reason I'm, I'm asking, like, you know, if you look at, you know, when studies that are done, you know, using just sort of a, and this, say for example, would be on like, you know, resting metabolic rate or something where it's just a half hour assessment versus a 24 hour, you know, assessment in a sort of metabolic ward type studies, that sort of thing, you know, you do see different things. Um, That makes me wonder where in in terms of the body of knowledge that exists on this, um, you know, what is the translatable potential of that information into real world practice? As far as we know, I mean, I know you've said it's early days. Um, It's just people love to, you know, talk about <laughs> the science on this stuff. But, you know, we, when you're trying to translate that into practice, it gets pretty tricky, doesn't it? I mean, what are your, I know we've talked about these sorts of things before, but what are your thoughts on this particular topic?
1: Yeah,
2: well, I, I guess it sort of comes back to, you know, what Kirsty said before, generally speaking, that, you know, you know, let's take energy availability. You know, when we say, well, 45 kcal per kilogram lean body or fat-free mass, however you want to put it, you know, per day is is where you want to get to but you've got to understand that you're not going to get an elite endurance athlete who's anywhere near that um you know and in fact you even say then 30 is our next best guess, and it literally is a guess right now in my opinion is is where you want to get them to there'll be plenty of elite endurance athletes who aren't all that close to that either Mm. so you know i think that puts the, the 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 practice into into context you can say okay yeah we want our we want our elite triathlete or our elite you know cyclist or distant cyclist or whatever to, to be at 45 kcal per kilogram of lean body mass per day it's just never going to happen mm. and one of the other things is you've also got to understand why they they practice either low energy availability or low carbohydrate availability and, and quite often that's because it's considered to to be one of the drivers of the endurance phenotype in the first place so they're going to very much do that from a performance perspective so you know trying to completely drag them out of that practice is never going to happen and so, um, I think, you know, coming back to that, then there is that, that one case study paper by Trent Stellingworth where he's sort of periodized those, um, you know, those, those periods of, of low energy availability against times when you can, can, can give more energy It seemed to work for some of the outcome measures that were, that were determined in that paper. Um, you know, but that, that literally is an, an N equals one study and, and, mm. If anyone knows how to do that, it will be Trent. You know, Trent's brilliant at that kind of stuff. Um, you know, definitely along with, you know, some of the other people we talked about, one of the world leaders in in, in that area, with no shadow of a doubt. So um, you know, I think it is feasible and, and plausible practically how easy or difficult that is to 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 bring off is is a yeah. question more for Trent than it is for me. But
0: well and also um when we're dealing with elite athletes, we're dealing with people who are going to do what they're going to do anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that brings me back to my point as as the, the nutritionist to the athlete or to the team, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do is uh, do a bit of damage limitation as much as I can and, and where possible, you know, if I can have a conversation with the, you know, the, the coach or the sports scientist or, or whatever, and then maybe we can combine heads on it and do something about it. But, that usually they're just going to do what they're going to do, aren't they?
2: Yeah, and I think you've got yeah. no real choice. But, to, you know, that's why, you know, in, in terms of the practice element of it, it's not, you know, it's not and it can't really be science. You know, it has to be, to a certain extent, part art and part engineering, I think, in my in my opinion. Yeah. Um, you know, you, 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 know so so we can produce the science at one end but as you've already mentioned generally speaking when we produce the science it's in a it's in a very specific context it's it's quite often fairly reductionist um and we can say for example okay 30 kcal per kilogram lean body mass but that's not going to cover everybody by any stretch of the imagination it's going to be extremely individual and we're not talking about individual athletes there we're quite often talking about means and standard deviations and you know that that isn't something that necessarily translates across into practice. It can inform practice and and hopefully it does. But at the end of the day, the practitioner has to use their own, you know, bit of engineering and bit of art to, to, to do as best as they possibly can with the information available, in my opinion, you know, with the, with the, with the athlete.
0: And I I don't know
2: where we get any better than that, to be honest.
0: Well, time time will tell. Time will tell. I mean, you and I don't have quite as long to find out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Any day now. So,
0: uh, to be honest, we should have done this in the pub. It would have been more fun. <laughs> no, than than
2: not cathartic <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um,
0: just, it just occurred to me that just, just quickly, because uh, c- I think this could be relevant. Um, maybe from what you're seeing in in the lab, and maybe potentially what is a, a beneficial sort of an upside to some of these strategies is that the you know, the, the body gets into these situations and inevitably the body will try and survive the situation that it's in. That protective response sometimes can have beneficial outcomes, can't they? Is there is there anything of relevance there, particularly with energy availability, that that might have an upside when it comes to, to bone health, as long as we're aware of, you know, the longer-term implications of it?
1: I mean, if you take the, I guess, the... female athlete sort of idea Mm. you know when you know in a situation where there's low energy availability the body is programmed to you know to start to prioritize which system it's going to send energy to so you know in the case of the elite athlete it's diverting energy off to the you know the demands of the sport and so because it's redirecting energy there and it it doesn't quite have enough to go around what it does is then sort of starts to prioritize systems and and sacrifice what it considers to be the most um or rather the least important of, of those and so that's why we tend to see this you know change quite quite quick response in the sort of you know um Menstrual characteristics. So it basically decides, well, I won't send energy to the reproductive system. And that's not a priority right now. I'll I'll shut that down. Then you lose, obviously, your your menstrual cycle. You become amenorrheic. And, you know, because it's diverting energy elsewhere. And obviously, in the concept of the, the triad, energy will continue in that first instance to go still to to bone health but eventually obviously it will be sacrificed along the way so maybe that is i hope a a nice example for exactly what we're talking about you know prioritizing and and sacrificing of systems and as i say you know choosing which one and eventually it will it will start with you know menstrual function being uh, turned off first but then it will obviously have you know subsequent systems after that
0: yeah and i i love the whole topic of well things like energy partitioning and um, nutrient partitioning and and so on and um, uh, of you know that's what we try and do when we put a client into an energy deficit to you know um, you 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 manipulate things to encourage fat loss. Um, I, I think you know when and maybe th- th- this is where the whole concept of nu- nutritional periodization becomes you know quite plausible as long as we know what we're doing. But that's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> as long as we know what we're doing. Um, you, so in in this in this area of energy availability and in the, you know, the realization that a lot of athletes, particularly endurance athletes um, um, are going to be in this situation for, well, for many of them for a very long period of time, it's not just being in a state of um, low energy availability, even if it's only slightly low energy availability, there are other aspects of, of, of that. You know, nutrition partitioning. If we want to look at it, Um, the quality of of that person's diet is more than just calories. Obviously, what what is the relevance of that, Craig?
2: Yeah, potentially huge. Again, you know, it's 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 one of those things that, of course, as you say, if we're talking about low energy, and if we're thinking about this particularly in terms of low energy intake for a second, you know, low energy intake is not just low energy intake; it could well be low carbohydrate intake low fat intake low protein intake low vitamin d intake low calcium intake whatever this goes on right so and all of those nutrients may well be important are important for bones so you, you know you might you might then say well okay is it really low energy intake or low energy availability that's the issue, or is it low nutrient availability that's the issue? And, and you know, there's there's so many things that we can't separate there. So for example, does it matter whether that low energy availability comes from really, really high energy excise energy expenditures or low consumption of, of calories, of yeah. food? Um and we don't, you know, we've done we've done a single study on that blooming hard study to do, but um, we've done one study on that. And it, you know, it, it shows that, or indicates that there might be some differences in, in how that low energy availability is, is achieved in itself. So even that is not particularly well known. But, it, but if you, even if you look at the way in which we, we do that in a lab, if you wanted to cut energy intake by 50%, well, generally you'd find out the individual's habitual diet and just half it. And then that's what you give them. But of course, like I've said, you, you're cutting all of those nutrients in half as well. And so it's very very hard to separate out what would be a, the, the true effect of low energy availability or low energy intake from from low nutrient intake so you know so so it is it's a complex thing to to get yeah, it to is that. so and we'll 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 get into some of those
0: macronutrients in a second like carbohydrate and protein and so on, but just because i I particularly <clears throat> am concerned with the fact that, as I said right at the beginning, that, you know, we that's all we talk about is carbohydrates and calories and protein, but very, very much less we focus on things like vitamins and, and minerals uh, from a sports performance perspective. Um, but it is important. And, you know, in other conversations with other experts, you know, where we've talked about low energy availability and the ramifications that has for things like immune Health, for example, uh, is profound, you know, with Neil Walsh and Mike Gleason and um, and so on. Um, But as it relates to bone health, what I mean, you know, the consequences of not eating enough food and not enough vitamins and minerals and so on. Are there any particular vitamins and minerals that are of concern? And I guess we could further divide that down to, you know, an acute shortage versus a chronic
2: shortage. You know, is there any relevance there? Yeah it's another really interesting topic which we kind of touch upon in the paper and then realise that we don't know very much at all. Um, (laughs) We
1: don't know very much at all do we?
2: (laughs) I'm sure the people listening to this podcast will have realised that by now. They're not listening anymore
1: Um, they they, they turned off
2: ages ago. But I I think though there are are certainly some key nutrients to, to support bone health and I think you know in the athlete, they're not likely to be significantly different, you know, to, to what they would be in the in, in, in the general population. So, you know, things like calcium, phosphorus, vitamin D, magnesium, zinc, copper, all of those sorts of things, um, you know, are, are likely important. And many of those, you know, will will be things that would underpin things like immune function as well, of course.
1: Mm. But I think
2: they're all likely to be important for. For our global bone health and the way in which the bone is, is capable of responding to things so so that the fact that these nutrients are important these micronutrients are important is clear i think we know that from the from the general population diet and it's not likely to be any different in the athlete's diet of course one of the problems that i think we've then got is well what do you mean in terms of the quantity of requirement of these things? And that's a completely different question in many respects, because you could look at recommended daily amounts of these things. But of course the recommended daily allowance or amount is, is, is largely there to prevent a a deficiency in a decent sized chunk of the population. What it's not there to do is optimize things for an elite athlete, you know? So, so the athlete is, is very much looking at optimization, not necessarily just avoiding deficiencies. And I had this conversation with Louise Burke, actually, uh, both in person and, and over email while I was thinking about putting this paper together. And I was sort of saying, well, do we even know what, if, ignore bone, but just in general, do we even know what, you know, optimal intakes of, you know, micronutrients are going to be for the elite athlete? And and, and I don't think that we even know that. So So, even before we answer the bone question, I think we still need to answer the general question is, is, you know, what, what is an optimal intake of particular micronutrients for an elite athlete, you know, as opposed to the avoidance of a deficiency for the general population? And then, you know, like I said, they're definitely not the same thing.
0: Well, and an obvious thing that differentiates, though, athletes from non athletes, though, is that the non athletes are more likely to be in a state of excess. As opposed to athletes who are, as we pointed out, are often in some form of low availability, one way or the other. Um, as you say, it just makes it complicated. Which is which is why I feel it is important that you know a, an appropriately trained healthcare professional, um particularly with a you know training in nutrition, is someone who needs to be taking a look at this because it is a bit tricky when it comes to. To, to athletes um so i mean what just you know we don't need to spend too much time on this because they can read about this in the paper and refer back to their you know physiology books and so on um but you know are there any particularly where athletes are you know this is this is in in the theme of uh, people being in some sort of low energy availability are there um nutrients which you think are more likely to be of concern
2: yeah. 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 So I mean, I think again, that's that's a really good point, and it's it's important that we're absolutely clear that this is not um, this is not something that affects every every single athlete. Um, so I mean, I think you know there will be plenty of athletes who, who this isn't an issue for. So in the context of that lower energy availability or, or reduced dietary intake of, of nutrients, then I think there's probably you know a couple that the the traditional ones that we would focus on of course would be calcium and vitamin d yeah um and, and they they are you know probably the, the the two most important i would say but any of those new micronutrients that i i mentioned and there's a there's a decent well, decent ish table <laughs> um in the paper that kind of outlines some of those so 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 the intake of of all of those is going to be important but i think yeah inevitably because of their close direct ties to to bone calcium and and vitamin d are generally the two big ones that are that are focused upon
0: yeah brilliant yeah okay well we'll come back to those because they will relate to one of the things i'm about to talk about um one of which is protein without question the favorite topic for so many people um i've met i keep mentioning this when i look at the stats for this podcast the ones that get the biggest amount of um, random, you know, finds on the internet and or Mm -hmm. downloads is is just protein. So I always have to put protein somewhere in my uh, uh, information just to get the highest amount of hits for my, uh, my podcast Um, protein. So it, you know, I guess this is such an interesting one and I've heard you a few years ago now. um, um, But I remember you delivering a talk about protein and bone health. We've, done this as well we've we've spent a lot of time talking about protein and bone health but it wasn't a few years ago you know what you know why is protein relevant um to this this topic of, of bone health
2: well well i, I suppose it, it's it's one of the most interesting ones in a way, particularly in the athlete context, because there's this potential dichotomous response of the bone to protein. And and some individuals would suggest that actually protein might be bad for the bone because particularly if you've got this high intake of animal protein, you get this associated increase in the renal acid load. And, and this essentially has to be buffered. And one of the ways in which you do that is to release calcium or it's one of the theories of how you do that is to release calcium from the bone to to buffer that acid load. And then any additional calcium that's been released that, that doesn't get involved in that process then is is lost in the, in the urine down the toilet. Mm. But of course there's this other, you know, edge to that in the fact that, you know, protein is quite important constituent of the bone. It's just undoubtedly part of the organic matrix of the bone. And so, um, it's got a potentially quite a strong role there as far as the, the bone is concerned in terms of also things like activation of IGF-1 and other growth factors that, that might stimulate bone growth um, and also other indirect effects because you know, if you increase muscle mass, for example, then the force that's exerted by the muscle on the bone is going to increase and therefore that might positively affect the bone as well. So again, it's got like that kind of dichotomous view and it's it's further exacerbated in a lot of athletes because of course they're quite often um you know told to eat more protein than the than the than the normal individual would would mm. be expected to eat, and certainly above the recommended daily amount, which is probably too low for the general population anyway, let alone the athlete, but that's a different topic. Well, um I've done those podcasts. Yeah, I've truly done that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's, there's better there's better people than me to talk about that but um but so so i think that's why it becomes interesting is that mm. there's this potential you know you know dichotomy there is it good is it bad you know particularly in high amounts and higher amounts you know the higher amounts that athletes might might consume so um,
0: what about um because and this relates to that it, it, it is it's an oversimplification obviously well, not obviously, but it is an oversimplification to say good or bad, because good or bad for what is, I guess, the and good or bad when. But also protein, you know, there's different types of protein. Uh, you know, we could simplify it to um, plant-based proteins, animal-based proteins, complete proteins, incomplete proteins, which brings me back to this whole quality topic. Mm. Um, and of the myriad of podcasts I've done on this, you know, the, 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 you know, when, when we start talking about protein and we start breaking it down to amino acids and, and so on, I think maybe that's, is that maybe where there could be some more relevant interest to whether protein is better or not for, for bone health and, or worse um, in terms of its potential for, you know, adding to that whole theory of the acid ash thing. Um, because I'm thinking, am I right in saying that glutamine is actually involved in the buffering process? Yeah, so yes. so
2: there is there is a potential issue there. I mean, I think I think we should probably maybe summarise to the point that now I think we, you know, most of the time, provided dietary calcium intake is adequate, um, that the kind of protein intakes that might be a couple of times the RDA are unlikely to be detrimental to the bone, you know? So, mm. so, so generally speaking, we rarely see as a global commentary that, that, that provided you're taking in adequate calcium, that, that dietary protein, even if it's animal dietary protein intake, isn't, you know, a problem at two, two, maybe even three times the RDA. Um, then that whole issue between animal and plant proteins is, is another interesting one in that, you know, there are some um, studies there that suggesting that, um, that um, there aren't, there aren't too many differences. Again, look, assuming adequate calcium intake, there aren't too many differences in the bone response to animal protein and plant-based protein such that plant-based proteins don't do any better than animal-based proteins, as far as the bone is concerned. Ie, you know, the reason why it might, of course, is that the animal protein exerts a much higher renal acid load than the plant protein does. Sure. Um, so those kind of, kind of so-called acidic protein diets, alkaline protein diets, I don't really like the term, but you get the picture. Yeah. Uh, there isn't much difference between the two. And then one of the things we don't really know too much about, although it's starting to come, is is the last part of your question and down to individual amino acids, and particularly in relation to Excess total protein feeding, we still might say excess more than the RDA protein feeding. We don't really know, we don't really know too much about the response of that at all. And I think that's the next, yeah, the next, the next, yeah, that's where research is going to go, maybe.
0: So, and uh, Kesha, I know you've got to go in a minute, so I'll I'll sort of, I'm not going to let you get away with uh, 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 you having uh, a bit more uh, on this topic. So, in energy availability, sorry, in a reduced energy um, availability, and let's, let's say in a planned energy deficit, so it's for a reason, it's, you know, we, we know it's happening. And, and in that scenario, and we've talked about this a lot in other podcasts, and this is, you know, a common theme is we need to increase protein um, for a number of reasons. And one of those, um, you know, would be to, protect the loss of muscle mass and energy variability but also we're talking about athletes um, and protein plays a role in uh, a functional role in positively in the adaptations to training etc in that scenario as it relates to bone health how important is is protein then going to be if we're going to look at the positive sides of, of of keeping protein in the diet
1: <laughs> you said Craig, right? Craig yeah. Question. Yeah, I, I've already left.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you, can, you can pass. You can pass this over in a minute. But either way,
2: I didn't oh want to let you go. You
1: answer that. That's a whopping question. I was <laughs> steering clear of that.
2: One. Yeah. Well. Well. I mean, so it kind of comes back to my previous point, really. So, so certainly in terms of, you know. um you know, exercise performance doesn't really matter whether you're an endurance athlete. And when, when we're talking about low energy availabilities, we're, you know, predominantly talking about endurance. Know, not, not solely by any stretch of the imagination, but, but we're quite often talking about endurance athletes. So whether you're an endurance athlete or you're a strength and power athlete, then, then certainly, you know, an increased protein intake is going to be required as far as, you know, your, your performance is concerned, trying to maintain or maximize or even increase muscle mass depending on the focus. And so, yeah, inevitably, it's an important one. But I think if I was to summarize this quite basically quickly and easily in as practical way as possible, I would suggest that in the, the sort of protein intake, intakes that an athlete might want to consume for performance are unlikely to be detrimental to the bone, provided there's an adequate intake of calcium.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say. Stole the words out of my mouth. <laughs> 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 um
0: Yeah, well, well, Kirsty, I know you need to go, so we'll we'll say adios and thank you so much for your um, inputs um, uh, on this. And I'm going to collar you another time to get back into uh, into some related topics at another time. So I'll I'll let you go. Thank you so much, Kirsty. Great,
1: great great for you.
0: Right, Craig, it's you and me. So um, I just wanted to stay on this topic for a bit because recently I did um, a podcast with Dr. Nick Bird, Nicholas Bird. where the focus you know follows the thing that that we are really trying to promote in performance nutrition which is a food first approach and in the you know in the spirit of the food first approach you know we're looking at the you know the the, the impact and the importance of the food matrix and by that we mean in for example in the context of a protein rich food there's more than just protein there's other things and is it, it's not just a question of there's other things that happen to have a benefit or may not because there may also be excess calories or or whatever. Um, But it's the, it's the idea that with the food matrix that, you know, those, those constituent parts, you know, when combined are greater than the individual ones. So for example, we talk about protein and certain amino acids and or calcium or whatever, but what about the concept of of the food matrix as it
2: relates to so so the obvious one there i suppose as far as the bone is concerned is the intake of dairy for example Mm. so i mean of course there you know you've got you've got protein you've also got calcium you've also got phosphorus so you've got a number of different things there that that are relevant to the bone that are high in that particular type of food so so you know i would suggest that the dairy intake provided it's you know, safe and pertinent for you to do so is, is relatively important as far as the bone is concerned. As far as that, as you were talking about food matrix is concerned, yeah. you've got a number of different positive constituents of that particular food intake that, that, that as far as the individual you know, nutrients provided are concerned and, and that, that would support you know, good, better bone health. So that, that would be a prime example from the from the bone area, really, I would say.
0: And I guess the flip side of that then is, and you know for perfectly good reasons, people will be going down a plant-based approach, you know which is their, which is a choice, of course, and and done correctly, you can still be super healthy and be a you know top athlete in the world and and so on. Um, but what are the what are the sort of the, the areas of caution there that that you would point out? Um and, and what can they do about it anyway?
2: Yeah, well I, I think, you know, there's you know I'm no expert on this by any stretch of the imagination. So um, you know, you'll have to bear with it. But um, you know, to my mind there is there are certain nutrients from from that type of diet or from any type of very specific diet that that, that may well be lacking. So I think one of the things that you you obviously need to be cognizant of is is, you know, the availability of those particular nutrients i.e. do the foods that you eat contain them in the first place and even if they contain them can you can you absorb assimilate and and use them in a, in, a, in an enough of a mm. enough of a way to be able to support whatever system in this case bone that, that you're looking to support so i mean i think any very very specific diet you know may well contain some deficiencies in particular particular nutrients and if those nutrients are are important um then you've got to consider where you're going to get those nutrients from and and to what extent even if those nutrients are being provided to what extent they provide those nutrients so again it comes back to your quality quantity etc commentary you know so you know so some foods for example very very high in in calcium but you know it's 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 more of a struggle to, to 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 absorb assimilate the the calcium from those foods than from others, you know? Yeah. And, and,
0: uh, you know, just from a scope of practice perspective, you know, I think it warrants saying that in this situation, you absolutely should have your, you know, registered dietitian, registered nutritionist, uh, you know, appropriately trained and educated individual who's able to understand whether that is an issue or not and can provide the appropriate help and advice for, for athletes. Cause you know, there is that difference between sports nutrition and nutrition. uh, And that, you know, the gap there is an area that I think some, some athletes tend to to miss out on that, because it's just not immediately obvious that you're missing out on those things. Um, And they can take, they can take months and months, can't they? Um, Just quickly on that, when it comes to an inadequate intake of things like calcium from the diet, you know, you you, you you can't compensate for that overnight with a supplement, you know, just to, just one one off intakes, can you? Like, wh- you know, what sort of time span? Oh, is
2: when you go about well, time frames, it's really difficult to estimate because it depends on the time. To- the the the, the time if you you are in a deficiency, it depends on, of course, yeah. on how long you've been in that deficiency, the magnitude of that deficiency, you know, in relation to how long it might take to to make corrections. Um, you know, so you know. Bone is a, is a relatively slow responding tissue compared to, to some of the other tissues, but um, nonetheless, you know, it, it still relates to you know. It, Absolutely, you're not going to get an immediate return just because you've then started to take a so a supplement. For so what? So
0: you know, we talked about food first and and so on, but there might be a case for supplementation though uh, from a, an insurance type perspective. Do you think, particularly in athletes who are engaged? you know, um, in high training loads, endurance sports, that sort of thing. Um, they are, you know, even in a planned, you know, low energy availability for one reason or another, the risk of having a lack of some of those nutrients is pretty high. Do you you think that is one area that maybe, you know, a supplement and what kind of, supplement do you think might have some value
2: yeah again it's, it's a really really tricky question because inevitably it's going to be you know quite individual and quite specific but um i think you know if you are you know entering into into a, a period where the, the diet might be deficient in something then of course supplements have its place if you if you if you you're trying to correct a deficiency or for whatever reason you can't consume a particular food or don't want to consume a particular um, food or, you know, under those circumstances, I think, you know, again, we we would always advocate food first, but under those circumstances, I think, you know, a supplement is, you know, worth considering, Mm. um, if, if it's likely to, to to resolve one of those issues, um, you know, and and that might range from anything from a sort of a, you know, a, a multi supplement, Um, depending on what the deficiency, of course, is or or, or the issue is to, you know, things that might be quite specific. So, you know, calcium supplements or vitamin D supplements or or even iron supplements, of course, are the the big ones that that the athletes quite often focus upon. But under those circumstances, of course, you've equally got to consider whether they're as efficacious as as whole food as well. And and there is some consideration that, that certainly if you just look at calcium supplementation on its own, it's not it's not massively effective or it's not as effective effect. Effectiveness improves a little bit. If you combine calcium and vitamin D, it would seem. Um, but of course you, then you've also got to be a little bit wary of overcome consumption of these things, you know, and, and, and when yeah. focusing on the right things, when we're measuring d- deficiencies or, or not, you know, so, so it you again, you've, you've reminded me of
0: a lecture you gave to us once, um, <laughs> And uh, you, you you gave us sort of a flip side on this is that you know we don't know you know we start adding these things to the diet you know when those things start to combine what what effect are they potentially having we just don't know do we and uh, uh, like you say the 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 evidence you know because you see that you walk into a health food shop you know I know that's not necessarily recommended for athletes particularly ones that um, you know have you do need to be mindful of uh of doping and you know contamination of supplements and so on, which just goes without saying um but you know the, the, the there are a whole there's there might even be a whole section that's about supplements for bone health um it is quite surprising you know the the specialist products that exist um to help support bone health in general population you know you see a not to typecast anyone, uh, but you know, sort of postmenopausal women, for example, or, you know, people in the older years, they're like taking a supplement to protect their bones. The reality from what you've just said though, is that that's, that's probably highly misleading at best is that, you know, it, with athletes, would you say it's even further? It's just, a, you know, we don't even,
2: Again, it comes back to, you know, you know, even if we think about it, you know, logically from the start point, we still don't really know what optimal intake is yeah so if you if you start from there then everything else is we still don't know so yeah. um you know in in terms of that you know if you're trying to optimize it's difficult and and you know and, and you're right two two of the things that you said there ring true one is we don't often know what what the combined effect of of, of combining supplements is and of course you know you know you see this in in, in my other area of, of of interest in in terms of performance related supplements you know quite often you say okay well here's the effect of sodium bicarbonate on, on performance X, and that's muddy. But then you say, well, actually your athlete's probably taking sodium bicarbonate, beta alanine and nitrates. So what really is the effect? And some of them might be taking sodium bicarbonate, beta alanine, nitrates and creatine. So what's the effect? And you know, you don't know whether that's positive, negative, you know, probably add caffeine in there as well, if you really wanted to. So, I mean, I think under those circumstances that, you know, when you're when you're stacking those things up, you've got to make sure that, you know, as much as you possibly can, that one's not not causing a problem for the other one. And, and they may be synergistic, of course, or equally they, they may not. Um, and I think the other thing really is as far as that is concerned, you, you have to be careful with just focusing on a single micronutrient and then considering the fact that more is always going to be better. You know, and there I, I always point towards vitamin D supplementation, you know it was a major thing some years ago. And then all of a sudden, you know, we, you know, undoubtedly we've got, we've got athletes who are at the lower end of the circulating vitamin D concentration than than we might want them to be. But we were starting to see athletes who were then at the other end, they were up at, you know, instead, instead of being down at, you know, Ten, 20, they were up at 200 300 nanomol per litre and and then there mm. may well be just as equally detrimental effects up at that end of the scale as there may may well be down at the other end of the scale so you know all of those things add a certain degree of complexity which is why i'm not a practitioner
0: yes <laughs> there are other reasons but <laughs> <laughs> um, um uh, you, you you know you've mentioned vitamin d and i think. I think this is, you know, well, this is one of the last areas that we'll get into because we haven't got time to, we could go on for hours on this stuff, but uh, vitamin D is interesting for a number of reasons. I've done, you know, I've talked to a new number of people, including Graham Close, obviously, you know, did a lot of work on this, um, and uh, Dan Owens, uh, who did his PhD in this area. The the, the, the the thing about vitamin D I guess is, well, you know, it, it's something that um, isn't something we tend to rely upon from our diet, but can be administered as a nutritional supplement to have an uh, have an effect. And, and athletes, um, you know, we think of them largely as people who train outside and, you know, we might assume that they get sufficient, you know, exposure to sunlight, et cetera. And this might not be a problem area, but as you've just mentioned, you know, when you start testing these people, you, you can get some surprising results. Either way, I certainly have in the team sports that I've been involved in. You know, I've made assumptions that people with sort of African, you know, heritage, you know, would be the ones that need vitamin D and they've been fine. And I've got my, you know, sort of um, Celtic, uh, Caucasian, uh, sort of almost kilt-wearing uh, uh, members of the team who um, who have been completely the other end of the spectrum. Like, you know, just just where is it at? So, since it's an area in your paper, and it is certainly something that's known to have an impact on bulk, what, what, on bone health, what, what do we need to know about that,
2: and, and what can we do about it? I think certainly vitamin D. You know, if you think about it just as a nutrient on its own, it's it's, it's got a potentially important role, both indirect and indirect, on the bone. You know, and, and then indirect, you know, largely through its 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 role in in the absorption, the intestinal absorption of of calcium and phosphorus so in that sense it's it's important um but but the kind of question over how much is important and again you know those kind of ethnic you know differences racial differences etc in in requirement could could be quite interesting um you know graham i'm sure has talked about this before whenever whenever you've spoken to him about it but um so it's it's not yeah, it's not, it's not wrong to suggest that vitamin D is is of course important, and I think then you've got to consider well, what what is what is good and adequate vitamin D concentrations as as far as the athlete is concerned, and even that's complicated because what do you mean by adequate, and what 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 is it you're measuring? So. Mm-hmm. So there is some suggestion that just looking at the circulating 25-OHD concentration is somewhat misleading because you know um, you know it's really the, the bioavailable concentration of vitamin D that you, you you want to know. But ignoring you know that for a moment, again, I'm sure that's something that Graham's talked about in the past. But but I think if you if you just look at you know vitamin D and bone health, then there is some suggestions that you know getting much above sort of 50, 70 nanomoles per liter is not really you know, getting any higher than that's not not really important. It may well be that getting a little bit higher than that is important as far as muscle health is concerned, or muscle yeah. function, I should say, is concerned. But even that's not not clear yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. Um. So, so I mean, I think you know, yes, vitamin D is important. Yes, we need to make sure that that we're getting you know good vitamin D in the diet. But but even vitamin D in the diet is nowhere near as effective as increasing the circulating levels as as a bit of sun exposure is. So. So actually it's one of those things where looking at the whole process might be important and, and and adding a little bit of safe sun exposure. And I, I do make sure I reiterate that word safe sun exposure, um, is, is probably as efficient as effective, sorry, or, or maybe even more effective than, than looking at dietary changes. Um, and generally speaking, the evidence would suggest that, you know, provided it, you know, you've got, you've got that adequate, you know, sun exposure, then, then it, it doesn't really take too long. Um, you know, so, so maybe again, it's looking at the whole thing, but, you know, again, absolutely vitamin D is important, but I don't think it's it's one of those cases where, where more is not necessarily better, at least as far as the bone is concerned.
1: No,
0: great. Thank you for that. Yeah. Cause is it, you know, to refer to our previous conversation about sort of bone support supplement formulas and so on, it's, it's, it's just interesting how far they take that. But in reality, it's like, well, It's not, you know, not, not, not really particularly valuable at all, I guess, compared to the bigger picture, where quite clearly things like energy availability and um, protein intake and, and also the benefits of loading the bones and so on, as we discussed in previous podcasts, you know, are all more important given, not in athletes necessarily, but general pop you know aren't particularly active are they yeah. so i
2: mean there's there's no doubt that sort of the, the, the mechanical loading effect on bone is is far greater than the the nutritional and dietary effect on, on bone is concerned but obviously you know so so manipulating training loads and, and effects on bone is, is another very very interesting area but of course given that athletes don't often like you to tweak too much with what they're doing as far as mm. their you know their exercise and training is concerned then then one of the other things that we, we look towards is, is whether, you know, modifications to the diet or, or to the to, to supplements and things like that, you know, for the athlete can be, you know, can be beneficial. So
0: with, well, particularly with athletes who are engaged in high volumes of prolonged sort of endurance exercise, for example, who aren't loading their bones in the ways in which you just described, um, you talk about potential issues with dermal calcium and sodium losses. What, what why is that of relevance to this?
2: Well, it's just again, it sort of comes back to um, you know, and and Dan Barry and Wendy Court put out a paper with a with a nice diagram in it actually that that, that covers this, you know, quite nicely and that, you know, essentially what happens is if you if you if you lose enough calcium, for example, in, in the sweat, you know, through you know, through the skin in, in the sweat then obviously you start to get a lower calcium concentration in the blood and that's detected. Um, One of the things there that that, that the body will do is protect the calcium concentration as as best as it possibly can. So, so one of the ways of doing that, given that, you know, the majority of the storage of calcium in the body is in the bone is to break down some of that bone to release the calcium, to support the, the blood concentration. And so one of the things that the body does is, is, release parathyroid hormone when when you know low ionized calcium low, low blood calcium concentrations are detected to to break down the bone to some extent to 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 resupply you know the calcium to to the to the blood and so that's why it is potentially an issue is that, that mm. you know you break down that that store i.e the bone in order to 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 release some of those minerals into the into the circulation um,
0: fascinating yeah it's fascinating
2: yeah. And that but there is equally some, some, um, some recent data, you know, albeit not, not in athletes and not in a particularly prolonged, um, not particularly prolonged exercise. But again, it's from, from Sarah Werry from, from Wendy Court's group to, to suggest that actually dermal calcium losses don't really drive that, that response. Um, you know, certainly again, relatively acutely and certainly in a, in a, in a small volume of exercise, but. You know, maybe it would take prolonged exercise and a, and a reasonably large amount of dermal calcium loss before you would see an effect on on bone.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I mean, obviously, we we will learn more in time, won't we, about yeah. all this, particularly as it all it all combines um,
2: the bigger. Picture. I think that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think we also need a lot more in athlete work. That's one of the other things that we don't you know. We, we, we're Even you know, we're, we're even trying to extrapolate a lot from you know, recreationally active individuals, or in some cases, trained individuals. But again, that's, that's somewhat different to the really, you know, the, the, the true elite athlete. So it, again, it depends on which population you're focused upon. But we do need more in-athlete research, as hard as that is to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's a, it's, it's an important point. We we mentioned, Graham, uh, we did a, a, a podcast all about, you know, from paper to podium, that paper they did, um, which is directly relevant to what I did my doctorate on and this whole idea of, you know, the translational, translational potential of evidence, what even is evidence as it constitutes to informing practice and so on. It's all rather interesting, isn't it? And I, yeah, it is it, difficult because in sport and exercise science, particularly in sports nutrition, you know, relative to the knowledge that exists in the medical and health fields, there's just not a lot, is there? So we have to make the best one way or the other. It's just... Minefield.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and it comes back to my prior point about you know that the practitioner's got to be part artist and part engineer. I think you know and, and you know they've got to take the science and, and be aware of the science. But the the science is 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 at least as we have it right now, and particularly in relation to this topic, is not directly translatable in a in a one to one ratio by any stretch of the imagination. So it you know yeah. there's there's some interpretation that's got to go on there, and you know that's where the that's where the skilled practitioner lives
0: so the, the sort of the final area here before we sort of conclude and sum up and so on um is an interesting one and we've mentioned terms like period nutrition periodization um which is relevant to this uh, i'm about to talk about um uh, but also in the well more in the exercise uh, nutrition field um you know when people talk about how nutrition influences um adaptations to training to bring about you know increases in muscle mass manipulating body fat and so on there has been you know a great deal of interest about the timing uh, nutrient timing particularly things like calcium uh, sorry, calcium uh, carbohydrates and protein and this whole point of you know what's the point of having a protein carbohydrate drink right after, you know, is there an anabolic window and all these sorts of things. But of course, that's just one area. Uh, We realise, well, maybe, you know, it's more important what you eat in any given day, uh, as opposed to immediately after a workout, maybe we don't need to be anxious about forgetting our protein shakes in the gym. But there might be other reasons to be worried about acute feeding strategies um before or after certain exercise sessions and you mentioned this in the paper that there might be something here as it relates to feeding and acute exercise um, so you know what is that and what is that you know what is the relevance to bone health
2: yeah and again it's it's one of those things that we've started to look at just in terms of what you know again it, they're relatively acute studies and they're relatively isolated studies but but obviously that's one of the ways that we can look at you know maybe providing a little bit of direct evidence towards what what might be able to be fed around practice. And, and, and essentially, you know, we, we've gone the other way. So, so one of the things that, that, that John Scott looked at um, quite early doors was um, the difference between feeding a breakfast and not feeding a breakfast, for example. So, you know, that's, that's a, you know some individuals will will do one some individuals will do the other and we were looking at whether you know because we know that feeding influences those acute markers of bone turnover we were looking at whether you know there there might have been a difference there and and um one of the things we saw is that when you feed and immediately after you feed you get this this reduction in in CTX which is a bone resorption marker and we were sort of anticipating that this might carry on through the exercise and then a little bit into recovery. But actually, the minute the individual started exercising, the rate of increase in CTX was greater in the Fed group than it was in the fasted, such that if you looked at that effect overall, there was no difference whether someone fasted or, or someone was, was fed a breakfast. So in that sense, you know, very acutely, of course, I'm not talking about if you build that up over time, we have no idea. But acutely there didn't seem to be any difference in the bone turnover marker response, whether you were fasted or fed that that initial meal. And so then what some of the other things that we looked at is, you know, you know endurance athletes may want to feed during exercise, and and we looked at carbohydrate feeding there. And Wendy Court, of course, I mentioned has done some calcium feeding work as has uh Louise Burke's group. Um and so you know there, there may well be times if we want to support particularly hard individual training sessions where you know feeding particular nutrients at different times and again one of the other things that the Becky Townsend looked at was carbohydrate and protein feeding post-exercise and that's probably where we've seen our biggest effects is is in feeding is in feeding post-exercise and then
1: Mm.
2: so in some respects that's that's good because you've got a little bit more time there and, and you can you know you can affect what you feed and, and and how much you feed. Whereas you know before exercise, during exercise, you've got to be a little bit careful practically about how much you're feeding and, and, and what you're feeding. But it seems like you know protein and carbohydrate, given after exercise, has the biggest effects on on metabolism. And, and generally speaking, I think most of the the research on calcium would suggest if you were going to supplement it, then it needs to be supplemented before exercise. So even that's complicated. It's the yeah. part <laughs> Um, But, but I think, you know, these are just, you know, very preliminary initial studies and, and, you know, certainly I'm not, I'm not in any way, shape or form suggesting that, um, you know, we've we've solved this issue. There's a lot more that needs to be done, but I think, you know, one of the things we were considering there is that support for really hard individual training sessions. And of course, you know, eventually we need to look at whether that stacks up over time and whether over time you really want to, um, manipulate bone metabolism because of course that's that could well be a natural adaptation to to the exercise that's being performed so we we might not want to do that consistently and in fact my my guess is i don't think we do want to do that consistently but but i think you know maybe supporting those really hard individual sessions may may be able to make a little bit of difference that's where we were coming from with those those studies but but much much more to do there still
0: well, speaking of much more to do there, I mean, so what are the future directions then? You know, what are the the at least to your mind right now the most exciting or the most promising areas or the areas we desperate, you know, where there's a massive gap that we we really need to fill. What I mean,
2: where where do you think that direction should be? Um, well, pretty much everywhere, unfortunately. <laughs> um, you know, I think I think you know. So, so building up some of those acute studies is, is an interesting one and see what, what happens over time. Can we, can we really reduce down bone stress injury risk with, with you know, dietary manipulations, um, even those around hard training sessions or, or looking at you know, feeding as a whole over time? um you know can we i think periodization is an interesting one in those individuals who are going to practice low energy availability regardless or low carbohydrate availability um i I think that's interesting can we periodize those those periods of time such that you you still maintain the, the the potential benefits on the endurance phenotype but at the same time you 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 protect you know immune function you know health long-term health long-term bone health that that's an interesting area i think some of the interesting areas around really what we can measure and, and how we measure it so so some of the the work that that rita civil's doing as i mentioned before on, on looking at bone collagen turnover so, so we can get a better acute picture because of course that you know we won't go into it now but but there are some difficulties within with how you interpret acute studies particularly in terms of bone marker responses it's not as straightforward as one might anticipate such so actually if one goes up it's good if one goes down it's bad it's not it's not as simple as that so even that's complicated so trying to get an understanding a better understanding of the acute picture is is or the short-term picture it would would be even better um and i think you know you know that 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 whole thing about the nutritional intake as a whole what what is optimal for the athlete versus what is just literally you know overcoming a deficiency in a general population is is something that's that's interesting so really trying to optimize the athlete's diet is is another interesting area but i mean we you know as i said it's the the whole area is largely in its infancy so you can pretty much pick a topic and do something and it will be of interest i think
0: well, you know, maybe in another five years, we'll uh, or maybe less. There might be a you know, a, uh, this this discovery is going to start speeding up, possibly uh, as as traction starts to occur in this area. But um, we best leave it at that. Uh, Kirsty's already done a runner, so it's just yeah. you me left at the end here. Um, so, by way of summary uh, on this topic of nutrition and athlete bone health, then I mean, what are the key points then that you feel that. You know
2: we need to be left with at this point well i mean I think I think the, the the key points really are quite generic you know, given our last conversation but but certainly, I think you know there are a few things that we can point towards one is that you know chronic low energy availability is not not necessarily a good idea as far as the bone is concerned, and if we can avoid that and maybe if we can periodize it like we' just talked about. Um, then, then I think that that might be a beneficial thing that 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 someone could look at who's dealing with those types of athlete. Um, I think that the, the protein thing we kind of get into the handle on now. That you know, as I said, if you're if you're an athlete that's consuming more protein than the RDA to support performance in other aspects of of, of what you're doing day to day, then I, I think that's unlikely to be detrimental, provided you're intaking adequate calcium. Um, I think, you know, one of the things you might want to consider is some calcium supplementation. If you're one of those athletes who's performing really, really long, um, you know, endurance type activity, you know, several hours worth of exercise, you might want to support that with some pre-exercise calcium. Um, and, And we don't really know, you know whether you know athletes for example who are practicing certain sweating methods or whatever to to make weight whether that would also be of relevance for them or or athletes performing endurance type um activities in the heat whether that would also be pertinent we we still don't know that yet but but that might be a consideration that you want to give is supporting those athletes with some pre-exercise calcium um i think vitamin d if you're deficient then it's always a good idea maybe to to get your athlete to a to a sufficient level if you can and but after that i don't think you need to be you know too prescriptive about it as far as the bone is concerned more is not necessarily better um and i think one of the big things i'd like to leave everybody with is we need a lot more athlete specific research in this area and i think that is starting to happen actually there's a lot more you know when we first started doing this there was maybe one or two groups that were we're doing this type of work and now there are a lot more groups doing this type of work. So, so I think we will learn a lot more in the next sort of five to 10 years. And that's, that's great.
0: Brilliant. Well, look, you know, um, there was a lot that we talked about,
2: uh, a lot that we didn't talk about as well. So. And there's a lot <laughs> we didn't
0: talk about. Well, that's just the way, that's just always the way, which is yeah. why the beauty of these podcasts is essentially it's this recorded discussion. Um, first point of call is, Please read the paper, which is nutrition and athlete bone health. Um, you can find a link to that um, um, on the the podcast section under this episode, which will be at um, at our website, which is www. Um, dot which I'll tweet anyway. Um, but also, you you know, you've got what well, we've done other podcasts, which I'll also link to uh, along with you and Kirsty and other relevant papers. Um, um but also people can follow you on social media as usual you're you're yep. you're, you're you're pretty good at uh putting out some content particularly on twitter is, is that the main area to follow you on you think
1: yeah
2: mainly focus on on twitter um so it's at sale underscore x nut e-x-n-u-t um So, yeah, that's probably the the one I use the most. I am on uh, Instagram as well, but I think you're new to that. I know (laughs) I'm very very new to that and still have absolutely no idea. Keeping up with the times, yeah, Yeah, well, exactly, yeah, yeah, um,
0: yeah, I'll link to all of those. So, uh, and Kirsty, of course, because she's not here to to say that, and uh, you know, uh, periodically, you guys have opportunities for people to come study with you, PhDs, and and so on. Please do follow. Craig and, and Kirsty, uh, um, you played a major role in my own doctorate, so uh, I, I can testify that people should stay well clear of you, Craig, <laughs> <laughs> especially when Cafe Patron's in the vicinity. Yeah, well, exactly. Des-
2: despite <laughs> that, you've done fairly well, so that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: so there we have it. Thank you, Craig, for your time. I'm so appreciative, um, as we all are. I know everyone's going to enjoy listening to listening to this podcast Um, and like I say uh, just go to our website at www.theiopn.com to get uh, all of our uh, back catalogue of podcasts and also the other things we get up to my team and I at the IOPN including our uh, online diploma in performance nutrition which is um, all about advanced practice in the real world for potential uh, and aspiring and current sports nutritionists um i of course am lauren banner and look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon